0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. The Republic of South Africa has been a major source of migrants to Australia, particularly in the last 20 years or so. And our countries have many things in common. However, as many of you will be aware, South Africa has been and is a country sharply divided, not only by race and the legacy of apartheid, but also wealth inequality, language and class. Now, Helen was born and bred in South Africa of English-born parents, and as she fully admits, lived a relatively privileged upbringing compared to many other South Africans, but in a family who were anti the apartheid system. It wasn't until she met her Australian husband in South Africa, with whom she's been married now for more than 40 years, that she started to realize the extent of the bubble in which she'd been living. And despite her upbringing in an English-speaking country, the transition to life in Australia was a lot less smooth than she had expected. So please join me for a chat full of insightful observations and reflections on growing up in a divided South Africa and what changed for Helen in moving to Australia.
1: I'm Helen Tilbury. I've lived in Launceston. It's where I am right now. For um, 40-odd years, and before that in Hobart for a few years, but uh, I grew up in South Africa. And what am I doing right here? Well, I'm living happily as a retired person most of the time, but I'm also very involved with the International Film Festival that occurs in Tasmania. Yeah, well, I grew up in a town called Port Elizabeth, uh, which many people have heard of. It's uh, in the Cape province, about a thousand kilometres away from Cape Town, which everybody knows so well. Um, I had a very settled childhood. I was born in 1950. My parents were British, which made me a little different from many of my school friends who had, uh, many of them had been been there for generations, since the 1820s. So my parents were English-speaking, and we mixed Mainly, in fact, almost entirely with English speaking people. Many people, when they hear my accent, uh, they say, Oh, but you don't sound like Tony Gregg. Now, <laughs> Tony Gregg was a famous cricket commentator yep. who had a much stronger accent than I did, and mine was weaker, I suppose, because of my English
0: background. As well as the obvious racial differences in South Africa, was there like a noticeable divide between the English? South Africans and so the more... Um, the Afrikaans,
1: famous. huge, absolutely huge. I suppose Port Elizabeth had its Afrikaans-speaking people, but I certainly didn't know any. Wow. Um, I, th- I feel the segregation for me growing up uh, was as great between white English-speaking and white Afrikaans-speaking as it was, in fact, almost more so than with um, uh, black and coloured people. Yeah, right. And I think the the reason for that, of course, was the politics. Mm -hmm. The English speakers saw uh, the Afrikaners as responsible for apartheid. Certainly my parents did. And I'm sad to say that I probably uh, grew up with hatred earlier than I would hope many australian children would and it wasn't towards black people it was towards the afrikaners and sadly i suppose that prejudice still exists for me even though Mm. of course there are many wonderful afrikaans (laughs) people in the world
0: and what what drove that prejudice was it the influences around you or was it
1: well i I think it was ignorance as much as anything Mm -hmm. because um, you know, it was such a segregated society that, you know, I went to an all-girls, white, English-speaking school, okay. which was not a private school, but it was as good as a private school. It had that sense of being in the best suburb, and we we thought we were better than others, I suppose, I'm sad to say, um, whereas the Afrikaners um, were often referred to in my part of Uh, South Africa as the poor whites. So they, they lived in the poorer suburbs of the town and we just never really came across them. Uh, So my father was a a timber merchant I'm sure he did in in his work I'm talking about my childhood now Mm -hmm. Until I was 17 And then I went off to university in Cape Town But once again, once I was at university I was at an English-speaking university The University of Cape Town And by that time, Nelson Mandela Was imprisoned on Robben Island And the Afrikaans University Was in a much smaller town called Stellenbosch and um, there was great rivalry for instance in the rugby match you know rugby being almost a religion in South Africa the English-speaking university against the Afrikaans speaking university so we met Afrikaners on the day of the of the big rugby match but not much otherwise really
0: so, so there was kind of a class system as well as a racial yes, divide.
1: Yes, and of course the other people, I mean, if we're talking language, the other people who spoke Afrikaans as their mother tongue were the coloured people, the mixed-race people. Mm-hmm. And um, we had a little bit more contact with them at a place like Cape Town University, and they, I suppose, formed a... a Bridge isn't the right word because they were also very jaundiced against the Afrikaans people. So what I'm trying to say is it was a, a very divided society. But I mean, mm-hmm. equally, when I was growing up, my only contact with black people was through the servants we had. OK. Um, and uh, again, I don't want to suggest that we had a retinue of servants. We We had a maid who came in every day. But my mother was very proud that... She didn't sleep over. She went home to her family in what was called the location, Mm -hmm. whereas many, many people in Port Elizabeth had maids who slept in little back rooms and were there six days a week. I'm not sure who looked after their children, but my mother and father, again, because of their British background, were keen to do the right thing by what were called the non-whites.
0: Because a lot of our views and um, prejudices get consolidated when we or get built up when we're we're young Uh, how aware were you of the situation in South Africa as like when you were at school were you completely kind of cut off from
1: um, no i think I, I was aware because my parents were politically aware of the yep. situation and they wanted to change it and so when i was 12 i was actually overseas in the uk visiting my grandparents with my mother and i still remember the letter we got from my father to say that the prime minister at the time who was called hendrik Verwut, had decided that we should leave the commonwealth And my father was suggesting in this letter that this might be the time for us as a family to leave South Africa. And I was totally horrified. I didn't want to go to this cold place called England. You know, South Africa was my home and I was very proud of it. And, you know, I was 12 by this stage. But I think, you know, that was a line in the sand for my parents that the Commonwealth that they had... um, They'd moved to to South Africa before the war and they saw the Commonwealth as being a very important institution. And the thought that they were going to be struck asunder from Mm. it was horrifying to them. So I I was pretty aware of politics from an early age. One of my vivid memories as I suppose a teenager was in order to get to the beaches at Port Elizabeth, we had to drive through what was called a mixed race area. And there there were Indians, coloreds. I don't think there were many black people, but it was, you might have heard of District 6 in in Cape Town. So Mm. it was one of these mixed race areas that had developed. I mean, South Africa was settled in 1652. Mm. And it's often interesting to remember that in terms of Australia, that it's had a, a mix of cultures for for a long time. Yeah. And I remember that area as being, as we drove through, you'd see alcoholics on the roadside, you'd see homeless people, you'd see beggars, It smelt. It was um, There were a lot of fishermen who sold their fish on the side of the road. So you entered this different world and then you passed through and then you were back into the white area, which was the beaches. And so that area, uh, when I was a teenager, was cleaned out. And they were all sent off to separate areas and this was part of apartheid that the coloreds lived in one area and the indians lived in another area and the blacks and so on and of course the areas they were sent to were not nearly as central or filled with culture and heritage as these um, areas near the city center so once again the reality of apartheid hit hard even though we were the privileged and we weren't suffering. But it was in our faces that it was happening. My school was probably quite similar to a private school in, say, Launceston. You know, Mm -hmm. we wore a uniform. We had... It was sort of English-based, you know. We had Panama hats and we had tunics. And, look, I don't think it was particularly good education it was good in terms of the three r's and i learned latin to year 12 and i had to learn afrikaans as my second language and again that uh, prejudice showed up there i was i was quite good at english and latin but afrikaans i just barely scraped through and my afrikaans teacher in my final year said i had a guardian angel because i just made it through and i was very proud of that
0: did you have to use Afrikaans much?
1: No, well, no, not a, not a, at at that age. But once I um, was training to be a teacher, mm-hmm. so I did a BA and, and then um, decided I had to become a teacher because there weren't that many options for other careers uh, back in the early uh, mid-60s. Then I had to be able to teach in Afrikaans, okay, which was <laughs> a bit of an effort, but I... Scraped through again <laughs> it was absolutely wonderful to ca- to Cape Town University and um, that certainly upped the ante of my awareness of The fact that South Africa was such... There was so much inequality because um, there were many protests at university. and I'm sad to say I wasn't the leader of those protests, but I I certainly got involved and marched against apartheid uh, in the streets of Cape Town and got chased by dogs and all of that sort of thing. And interestingly, that you think might have made me into someone who was keen to protest... All through my life, but I've found since I came to Australia, I've not been a placard carrying person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've had strong views about political issues, but I tend to avoid marches. I'm not quite sure why. <laughs> and many of my friends were much braver than me in having, in being jailed and having the names put on lists. And, you know, you didn't want to have your name on the list uh, as a political protester not a nice place to be because the potential was that you could be put under house arrest for five years Mm. so you know it was a very draconian government
0: after you you graduated where did you end up um teaching
1: so i think the same occurs in australia you know you need to Find a teaching job in Cape Town, which is where I would have wanted to stay. There were no teaching jobs, so I found myself in a very small town, not far from my hometown of Port Elizabeth, called Uitenhage very afrikaans town but there was an english-speaking all girls white school which is where i found myself teaching and working and and living in the boarding house and you know when i think of it today we had to wear stockings Mm. and this was a hot place right through the summer we wore stockings and when the headmistress came into the staff room at any time of the day we as staff members had to stand up
0: yeah right So like- and
1: so the rules, the, the discipline in a school like that were great and the children listened to what the teacher said and I, I enjoyed it, I was teaching English but once I came to Australia I realised how different the education system was in, in Tasmania to, to what I was used to in South Africa.
0: And how long were you teaching there for?
1: Well, not too long. Um, Luckily, I met an Australian uh, who I have now been married to for 46 (laughs) years. Uh, So I was out of the boarding house, um, married to Owen, and we moved to Johannesburg. And it was there that we made the decision to leave. When we married, we still thought we would live in in South Africa as a couple. Um, But we moved to Johannesburg for Owen's work. And it was there that the Soweto riots occurred in 1976, which was when the black youth of South Africa rebelled against, interestingly, um, the imposition of them having to be taught in Afrikaans. And the Soweto riots occurred, and of course we were living in Johannesburg, which Soweto is the black suburb, or was the black suburb on the outskirts of the white area. And... uh, many people will probably have in their mind the horrible photograph of black children running towards and being shot uh, at point blank range by uh, white army and police. And that's when we thought, no, we don't think this is a country we want to, to bring up our children. Uh, How did you and Owen uh, meet? Oh Well, that's a long story. How long have you got? Um, My brother, uh, older brother, had been at a German language school in Germany and he met this crazy Australian. And a couple of years later, this crazy Australian hitchhiked through Africa and landed up on my brother's doorstep in Port Elizabeth. And my brother invited me to come along and meet him. Mm-hmm. And we were married six months later, yeah, which, right. much to the horror of my father, who thought <laughs> Australians were, you know, a footloose bunch. And uh, he, he obviously didn't plan that I would marry an Australian. But he, he grew used to it and, and loved Australia when he came to visit. I mean, I've never really thought about this, but he seemed much freer uh, and open-minded than many of the boyfriends had had up until that time who'd been Mm. South Africans. I went out with a rugby player at one stage and I was pleased that Owen was not particularly interested in sport because (laughs) I got very bored watching rugby
0: games how long was owen were you you together with owen in south africa
1: oh we were there for i think it was a year and we were saving madly to leave and we had plans to to travel to get on the open road again so we didn't fly straight to australia we flew to kenya Mm-hmm. And of course, at that stage, I couldn't enter Kenya on a South African passport. I was still persona non grata because of the rest of Africa had pretty much cut themselves off from apartheid South Africa. But I'd had British parents, so I was able to get a British passport. So that was my first experience of black Africa. And we stayed there for about, I can't remember, probably three weeks exploring And then we flew into Pakistan and spent six months traveling around a month in Pakistan and five months in India traveling on the cheap. And this was my real introduction to Owen's form of travel. You know, I'd, I'd done the thing. I'd been over to Britain. And lived in Earl's Court and traveled around Europe in a combi with the rugby-playing boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Um, but I hadn't really done the backpack traveling on the cheapest of cheap rail tickets. Yeah. And so that really um, was quite an experience for me. I, I, I suppose it was then that I realized I was a, a little bit of a spoilt white girl from southern Africa. <laughs>
0: How did you end up in Launceston?
1: Well, uh, after about six months, um, we were running out of money. So we needed to come back to Australia. So we flew into Sydney, lived with Owen's parents and got jobs as relief teaching teachers in Sydney, in the western suburbs. And that's when I realized that my methods of teaching were very, very different to um, the ethos of Australia. So... Mm when I would tell a grade seven boy to sit down and he would look at me and say why should I mm-hmm. um, and I really didn't have an answer for that I realized I, I really wasn't equipped with what I noticed about Australian teachers they seem to be have a humor they be able to, in a humorous way, tell the boy to sit down and get Mm -hmm. him on side, whereas I didn't seem to have those skills at all. And the other thing that I really noticed, I mean, again, it was a cultural shock coming uh, to the Western suburbs and teaching there. I became aware that I saw everything through my South African eyes of, Mm -hmm. oh, that boy looks Greek or... I wonder if that's a Lebanese or that's a mixed-race person because that's just how one saw things in South mm-hmm. Africa. And I had a, a liquid brown-eyed little boy in maybe grade 7 class and I said, oh, are you from Greece?'' And he looked at me and he said, I'm an Australian. (laughs) And so uh, I had a lot to learn, heaps to learn when I I came to Australia. So we we spent about six months there in Sydney, um, getting some money together. We bought an old FJ Holden. Sydney was too big for us. I was horrified by what a flat continent Australia was. There were none of the mountains that I loved in South Africa. Uh, But we were heading for um, Adelaide to live With no jobs, I mean, one could somehow do that in in the late 70s and know that you'd pick up a job. But then we just did a detour with a a return ferry ticket just to go and check out Tasmania and climb a few mountains. Uh, We got to Hobart, and I suppose by this stage I was starting to feel homesick for South Africa. It was probably nine months or more since we'd left. And I said to Owen, let's just stay here. Mm. Because it reminded me a little bit of Cape Town with the mountain in yeah. the background, and the sense that there were mountains. I didn't realise that it was actually ten degrees further south and it was a much colder place mm. to live. Um, but yeah, that's how we came. Just um, we never returned. So that was in I think 1978, and we've never left. <laughs> I think I was shocked by the size of Sydney. South African cities are smaller, and certainly in the South Africa I grew up in, one thought of of it as the white areas, you know. Mm. Um, sadly, uh, the black people were confined to the outer suburbs, so the cities were smaller and you could get around them faster. But, you know, my first experience of Sydney and Parramatta Road uh, you know, just miles and miles and miles of strip development and traffic. And it's a long time ago. But as beauty, as beautiful as Sydney was, I didn't want to live in a big city. So I think the size of Hobart appealed a lot. Um, but I think it was mainly... I think there was also a sense of English heritage... Mm -hmm. interestingly and don't forget you know my parents were English I'd been on many holidays to to England and Scotland so yeah I just felt I belonged better here our first few years were in Hobart but I often think in many ways Launceston is not ...unlike parts of the town I grew up in... ...in terms mm-hmm. of church spires and in many ways very different. I also loved the trees mm-hmm. in Tasmania... ...the sense of these wilderness areas with these beautiful trees... ...but also the English trees... The, ...and the sandstone buildings in Hobart. And I also found the people friendly. Not necessarily... I'm not saying it was easy to make friends. Not at all. But I found places like the post office... Um, or even the police, they they seem friendly compared mm-hmm. to South
0: Africa. Apart from the uh, adjusting to the totally different style of way of teaching, were there any other things that you had to adjust to um, when you initially arrived?
1: Yeah, I. I assumed, because I was English-speaking and I moved to an English-speaking country and I'd married an Australian, that I would just slot right in and it would be easy. But I actually found it very hard to make friends. I mm-hmm. I couldn't read people. I think, oh, this, you know, this is going to be someone I'll make a friend of. But I seemed to have a lot of false starts and I felt very lonely to begin with. And we tended, and I think I've heard this from... Lots of people have settled in Tasmania. And it's still true that Mm. most of my friends are people who've come from somewhere else to Tasmania, Um, not born and bred Tasmanians. Of course, I have Tasmanian friends, but um, it did seem a bit insular. And, you know, that initial love affair of the beauty of the place was followed by quite a few years of not feeling like I belonged because of the difficulty of the superficial friendliness of Australians, which didn't seem to translate, or Tasmanians, but Australians, into deeper connections. I'm sure you've heard that before. Oh, my memory of Hobart, that was so strong. And if you were invited to a party, people immediately wanted to Pigeonhole you. You know mm. what school did you go to? And my accent often gave people the impression that, of course, I'd been to a private school. You know. Okay. And I didn't want to be pigeonholed. Uh, uh, yeah, I found it quite hard.
0: It's easy for in I guess any small place, but particularly in Tasmania, it is quite cliquey. And I think I described it to one of the people I interviewed as you have these little secret circles mm. um, and you can't it's very hard to break break, in, break in, into them very hard and like you say people will be friendly but they won't unless it's, they're not recruiting into their friendship no, circle no.
1: they might say oh we must get together we must come round," but they're totally empty statements and from that experience i've really tried when i meet all through my time in in Tasmania and I'm sure I've fallen into the trap and not done this but if I meet someone new I try and be honest about either I don't find them interesting and I I don't want to see them again but if I say we must get together I like to follow up on that because I, I just couldn't quite work out and look I'm not suggesting they weren't I'm sure I was part of many cliques in in South Africa it's not just that Tasmania's guilty of that. But I think the other thing about Hobart was I suddenly realised it was very monocultural and I really missed Mm. that mix of nationalities, not not nationalities, of ethnic groups, really mixed it. And, And one of my most seminal moments in Hobart was I was in the supermarket in Sandy Bay, didn't have any children yet myself, teaching at a Catholic all girls, private school, Mount Carmel. And in, in missing, I was in my homesick phase and I wheeled around the corner and saw an African woman with a baby on her back with burnished brown skin and curly hair and I just burst into tears. Right. Um, it just hit me in the heart. But then my white guilt, I was pretty sure she was from southern Africa but my white guilt didn't allow me to go up and say, oh, hi. Are you hi, you know, are you from South oh. Africa? So am I. I just skulked in the background and watched them. And I just realised I was missing seeing that ethnic mix. And so that was one of those moments where I thought, I've got to get involved with not teaching in an all-girls um, school, um, but in teaching refugees and migrants. And so I moved and 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 started doing some relief not relief work volunteer work um, with the migrant resource center and then had a career working with migrants and refugees teaching them english
0: i know that um, the Breath of Fresh Air Film Festival's been a big part of your, your life? What
1: well, was, I mean, only over the
0: last 12 years,
1: um, gonna, but was,
0: hey, it's 12 years, 12 long years. What what prompted you to start a film festival in Launceston?
1: Uh, well, I'd retired and um, then Owen retired and it was really Owen's impetus that there wasn't a a film festival in Tasmania. So we saw it very much that we were starting the first international film festival for Tasmania, not for Launceston as such, although it was based here. Um, And we thought, well, what are we gonna do with our retirement? And as I say, neither of us are sporty and Owen hadn't taken up golf um, (laughs) and I didn't wanna play bridge, but I wanted to do something to get me up in the morning Um, And so we got involved in a very small way and it's been a a roller coaster ride and but wonderful because I think another thing that can happen in retirement is you get um, uh, separated from uh, younger people in the society Mm -hmm. Um, and um, running a film festival really especially in the early days brought us in contact with young filmmakers uh, that's how I met you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, yeah, very much engaged uh, in Launceston as well. So it's it's been an interesting process. Yeah. And also intellectually stimulating.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as you said, you you have a... Focus on films that have a bit of a social message too.
1: Yeah, well, the mission of the festival is to find films that inspire positive change. So um, that helps. And a lot of people say, So, did you study film at university? Well, no, I really didn't, but I did study English literature. So I think that helps. And again, just uh, I've got quite an analytic. Um, minds I'm always trying to work out why things are as they are much more so than many people which can be a a disadvantage sometimes but uh, it meant that one could look at films very closely and I'm fascinated by how different countries and I really had still the feeling that for many Tasmanians who haven't traveled I wanted to bring a window to the rest of the world to, to local people.
0: We started talking, you started talking a bit about um, some of the differences and similarities um, between Australia and South Africa. What were some other of the more uh, obvious differences that you noticed on first settling here?
1: Well, as I say, a much more open, happy society and louder too Mm -hmm. and i particularly noticed this when i returned to south africa after about three years no probably probably no more more like five years when i went back to uh south africa and then i flew back into australia i wanted to kiss the ground with joy that i was back in australia because just a at the airport people speak loudly to each other okay um and smile and gesticulate and i don't want to make australians sound like italians <laughs> but it just struck me in comparison to south africa that it, it was a much more easygoing place and i like the fact that people broke the rules mm-hmm. um, we had a lovely example we rented a house in sandy bay when we first arrived and, you know, we'd had our six months in India, so we were very much in our earth garden phase. We we wanted to have our own chooks, and um, we also thought we might like a few rabbits. Mm-hmm. Um, this was Owen's sort of entrepreneurial flair that he thought we could have some rabbits, and I suppose kill them. I, I don't know really why he wanted rabbits. Um, so he phoned up the authorities, and of course, you weren't allowed to have rabbits at that stage. But the, the authority, the, the man who came around to, to talk to us, said, look, you're not officially allowed to have rabbits, but I've got rabbits. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, South Africa, such a rule-based was oh. um, in those apartheid years, so strongly rule-based that that was, that was wonderful. Another thing that I really noticed and I there was a dissonance here was people were much more aware of the environment and so when we came in in the late 70s uh, there was a, a lot of talk about saving whales and you know oh, yeah. and while I admired that and was totally in favor of saving whales I found it difficult to take it as seriously as Australians did because mm-hmm. I'd come from a country where we were as we were opposed to the government and what we wanted to do was free people mm. we wanted blacks and coloreds and indians or non-whites as they were to have the vote and it seemed like Tasmanians were worried about, in my mind, lesser issues. Mm-hmm. So I struggled a bit with that. On the one hand, I was delighted to be in a in a society where everybody had the vote. But I suppose in, in South Africa, you woke up every morning and you read the paper and you had a sense of moral indignation. Mm. Probably a little bit like actually Australians have at the moment about reading the paper. Yeah. <laughs> but back then, it seemed like, you know, uh, Whitlam had been in power that it was a free country and it was great but i couldn't take it as seriously do you know what i'm trying to say yeah and i'm sure that's true um, for for people who come from really war-torn places um they're delighted to be here but it's difficult to interact with australians because life is much lighter for them
0: is there anything that you miss about south africa in particular mm. that you don't have here
1: I guess? oh <sighs> It sounds like a cliche, but big wild animals, you know, elephants and lions and going to game reserves. I mean, I I love the fauna of Tasmania, but it's just not comparable with seeing the big animals of Africa. And most recently in 2017, we spent a month in Namibia and I'd love to go back there. Uh, and just immerse myself in the national parks.